All right, if you would take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 9. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 9. So I have a warning here at the beginning of my message. Perhaps not the kind of warning you're expecting. Yesterday, I broke my watch. Y'all with me? So uh, you, you, you may have to sort of steer the landing here if we get a little carried away. Mark chapter 9, we'll begin in just a moment in verse number 30. If you've been with us or tracking along on your travels, you are aware that we are preaching through, uh, studying through Mark chapters 8 through 10, the core of Mark's message practically, which is to follow Jesus. And the way that looks as defined by Jesus is described for us in chapter 8, verses 34 and following, where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and come on. This is what it looks like to follow me. It looks different than the disciples imagined. Just moments before, Peter has pulled Jesus aside and said, no, no, it mustn't be this way. And Jesus says, oh, yes. Not only will it be this way for me as your suffering Savior, but it will be this way for you as my suffering, sacrificing followers. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. March headlong into the adversity and the hardship and the persecution that so often accompanies our following faithfully after Jesus Christ. This is how it will look. God punctuates that statement with the Mount of Transfiguration declaration from heaven booming down with his godly voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We've observed in uh, last week's message, that true discipleship, as Jesus describes it here, uh, is trusting in, it understands the power of prayer and of fasting. There's a new addition made to our understanding of true discipleship in this, this week's message. The basic premise this morning is that true discipleship embraces the role of servant. Now, now I think, I said this morning to some guys who are standing around talking, I, I think that properly understanding this morning's message and next Sunday morning's message can resolve so many of the issues in, in American Christianity today. We, we, we tend to think of our following Christ as a means to the end of becoming a leader, as a means to the end of becoming successful, as a means to the end of becoming prosperous, as a means to the end of becoming socially acceptable people. But here Jesus turns the whole thing on its head and says, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, be last. For the last will be first, and the first will be last. I'm telling you, where the rubber meets the road, if you want a snapshot of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, get your arms around what's described in the verses that we'll read together now. If you have your Bible, look at Mark 9 and verse 30. Let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Here, Mark writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, the Bible says, Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, 
He didn't want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they didn't understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. Because on the way, they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome me but him who sent me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is the second time now that Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection in this section that we've been studying through. The first time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection is in chapter 8, verses 31 and following. There Jesus discusses, it seems, or emphasizes at least, the necessity of his death. He says, the Bible says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He must, he must, he must, he must. This is what must happen. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a must for your salvation. Apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. It's necessary for our conversion. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. By faith in Christ, we have been joined with Christ. We have died in Him, and we have been raised with Him. It's a must. It's a must. It's a must. Here in the second prediction of his death and resurrection, the emphasis is more on the certainty than the necessity. It's, it's not something that's so far out in the future. Now, the, the events that are leading up to the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Christ, and ultimately his resurrection are drawing nigh for the disciples. Jesus says in verse 31, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinful men. It is as though these events are already unfolding. It is happening, disciples. And Jesus seems to ratchet up the intensity of teaching them what they must know to be prepared for ministry that looks more like our ministry than ministry they'd experienced before. In other words, what ministry is going to look like apart from the physical presence of Jesus? What ministry is going to look like when you must walk by faith and not by sight? It looks like our ministry. Jesus says, it's coming. Now the interesting thing, there's a third prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection in this section. And the interesting thing for me is that it's always coupled with passages where the disciples are struggling to understand the, the role of servant that the Christian must take. Think about this. Jesus said, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised again, I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders. And Peter pulls him aside and says, no, no, it mustn't be this way. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now what Peter is struggling with there is this messianic triumphalism. Jesus has come to be the conquering earthly king that we've hoped he would be. 
He will give us a position of greatness because we're associated with his ministry. Jesus, Peter says, we'd like you to do it this way. Jesus is kind that he does not oblige for his suffering, death, and resurrection is again necessary for our salvation. Here, here Jesus makes his prediction again. He says the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinful men. It's happening, disciples. And the next thing you know, the disciples are having a conversation among themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. When he comes in his kingdom, who will be the greatest? At the present hour, who is the greatest? Who is chief among the disciples? Perhaps the debate has begun by the fact that only three were allowed to go up the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go up and they come back down. And the next conversation they're having on the road, the discussion is, who's going to be the greatest? Even when Jesus gives the third prediction, which we'll look at a few weeks from now, In the next paragraph, James and John come to Jesus and say, how about one sits on the left and one sits on the right when you come in the fullness of your kingdom? Jesus is militating against this natural inclination in all of humanity to exalt ourselves. What we want is to be seen. What we want is to be first. We celebrate first place, not last. And yet Jesus is saying that in the kingdom, everything has been turned on its head. It's all upside down. You've got to guard yourself. We're getting ahead a little here, but you've got to guard yourself against supposing or assuming that everything you read in the Bible affirms your worldview. Because what Jesus says here is so incredibly countercultural. Before we get there, let's talk about service in general. I want you to note first, as you see in your outline, that our service is to be modeled after the service of Jesus. Jesus says, take up the cross and come after me. Think about that statement. Jesus says, do what I do. Now, when he describes here his death, burial, and resurrection, he is providing for us an example to follow after. Now, always be careful of preachers who want to make Jesus exclusively an example. He's more than that. Jesus' death and resurrection is not an example exclusively, but it's certainly not less than that. It's necessary to our salvation. The death of Jesus is unlike the death of anyone else. You may die as a martyr for your faith, but you cannot die vicariously for the salvation of someone else. You will be raised on the last day, but you will not be raised on behalf of anyone else. That's what Jesus does uniquely as our Savior. But his life, nevertheless, provides for us an example of Christian service. It offers us a pattern to model our lives after in serving the needs of others. Jesus describes his suffering and death with these words. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him. And after he's killed, he'll rise again after three days. Now, think for a moment through what you find later in the Gospel of Mark in the Passion narrative, where Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem to the praise of the people, but very quickly the tide turns, and there's great opposition. You don't don't find Jesus insisting that his rights be observed. 
You see him meek, mild, and lowly. By the way, with the power to reverse course. One of my favorite passages is in the Gospel of John when Jesus refuses to speak before Pilate. And Pilate says, don't you know that I have the power to condemn you to death? And Jesus says, oh no. You have no power except it be given you from above. The implication there is that Jesus could have dispatched a multitude of angels. For that matter, the rocks could have been raised up as a defense for our Savior. But rather than insisting that his rights and privileges be observed, Jesus laid down his life for the salvation of many. And I'm telling you, one of the most distasteful things that I see among American Christians is this constant insistence that our rights be observed. When what the gospel has called us to is to freely, gladly, joyfully lay down our rights and privileges, confident that the gospel will resound by the blood of the martyrs. We're discomforted by our being talked about. By our being inconvenienced as though that's some manner of persecution. Jesus calls us here to embrace suffering. To involve ourselves in, in great sacrifice at personal cost. At personal expense. It, it will not be easy for us as faithful followers of Jesus in the here and now. And if it ever gets easy for us... It's probably because we've gone the wayward way. Christian service does not look like the service of the world. Christian service is not something that we do on a week-long vacation during the summer. It's something that permeates our life. It is who we are. It's what we wake up to do each day. And it demands that we are ever willing to take the last place, not the first place. That we rejoice in the unseen labor. I I remember when when I first joined the church, I thought the coolest job, the job that I wanted. There's been one time in my whole life in the church that I was ever able to take up the offering. Never got to do that. Nobody ever let me. I was young and and just not involved in that part of ministry in our rural church, and then I was a preacher. And you don't get to take up the offering when you're a preacher. There's a conflict of interest or something there. But I thought that was the coolest job. This this helps me to identify who the leaders are in the church. It's, it's It's an upfront public responsibility. That's great. But what Jesus is describing in our text suggests that it's the unseen responsibilities that are the most heralded jobs within the kingdom of God. There must be a willingness on our part to do the unseen service if the kingdom is to advance as it ought. Christian service is different than any other kind of service because it's modeled uniquely after the service of Jesus. Christian service doesn't care who gets the credit. It's willing to go unnoticed, to be unseen, and it often happens in difficult places that no one, no, no one else would go. I I was in a conversation with someone about foster care a while back, and I don't say anything that I'm about to say about foster care to be demeaning or to be disrespectful toward anybody involved in the foster care system, but it's a joke. 
And there's been an emphasis over the past year or so at involving Christian people, specifically the church. There's faith-based programming. Uh, Rescue 100 is a program. You'll probably hear from me about it at some point that encourages families from within churches to uh, equip themselves and, and to have their homes licensed so that they're able to take foster children into their homes, which is a brilliant plan. As this was the conversation. It's a brilliant plan because Christian folks are the only folks to put up with the junk necessary to be involved in that kind of ministry. Not long ago, I, I was sharing about foster opportunities with another brother in Christ. And as soon as I raised the issue, he, he responded with venom. And he said, let me tell you what they did to me, how they abused me, how this child came into our home and they swept him away and how it crushed our soul and broke our heart and how we almost didn't recover. And when they called me back the next time, I told them, don't you ever call my house again. I, I encouraged him and I was compassionate in that moment. But don't you think that the kind of ministry that leaves you bruised and battered, abused and taken advantage of, doesn't that sound like the kind of ministry Jesus would get involved in? It, it, it's not always glorious when you do the work to which the Lord has called us. But it always pays eternal dividends. We model our lives and ministries after that of our Savior Jesus. Number two, Christian service is, as we suggested moments ago, countercultural. It's different from the service of the world in that it's modeled after Jesus. And modeling our ministry after Jesus means that we do things in a way that's decidedly different than the way the world does them. Let me, let me, I, I began to pick up on this in the scripture a few years ago. The ethical teachings of Jesus. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Love your neighbor. Don't just go the one mile that you're compelled to go, but go the second mile. Love your enemies. If you love those who love you, you're no better than the Pharisees. Love even your enemies. There, there is a common thread that runs through those teachings, and here it is. Don't let what you do be affected by what those around you do. Now, the knee-jerk reaction of humanity is to justify our actions by our circumstances. I know I did this. If, if my children do something to one another today, I will say to, to Hunter, Hunter, why, why did you throw this at your brother? Well, Daddy, let me tell you what he did to me. That, that's how the story always begins, you know. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you behave foolishly in traffic tomorrow morning, your knee-jerk reaction will be to just say, Lord, you, you just can't believe what they did to me. It's just, it's just humanity. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to be steady, to be faithful, to be consistent in our obedience, regardless of what anyone else does around us. There, there's, there's some of that that's true about service as well. That, that we're not serving for what we stand to gain by serving. Y'all tracking with me? In the kingdom, it's all upside down. Success is measured differently than it is in the world. In the same way that Jesus has a different ethic, success is measured differently. In the kingdom, the way to be first is to be last. The way up is down. The way to be exalted in the kingdom is to be humble in the here and now. It's all much, much different than the way we think about things here. If you want to be first, you need to be last in the kingdom. As I suggested a moment ago, we've got to stop assuming that the Bible affirms all of our opinions. This is a radical teaching. 
This is incredibly different than what we tend to teach our children or encourage even in those under our stewardship. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. We do a little exchange. I'll have an exchange with my baseball boys. And before they go to bat, I'll call them over and I'll say, who's the best hitter here in the whole park? And the, the response that I'm looking for is not one of humility. What I'm looking for them to say is that, well, I am. I'm the best one here. Whether they've touched a ball with a bat in five years, it doesn't make any difference. I want them to go to the plate knowing, believing, confident that they're the best hitter in the field. But brothers and sisters, when it comes to kingdom work, we are not playing games. Success in the kingdom is measured not by celebrity, not by your status, not by your financial position, not where you stand or how often you are noticed, but by being the servant even to the least of these. Christian service is counter-cultural. Number three, Christian service should shape our ambitions. Now, we're skipping over some content here, so let's go back to verse 33 for just a moment. We'll work back down to our point. The Bible says they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. When you're arguing about who's the greatest and Jesus asks, what are you talking about? The best response is just to be quiet. <laughs> so they didn't answer because that's what the conversation was about. And he sat down and he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and had him stand among them and taking him in his arms, he made an example of this child. We'll get to that in just a moment. Disciples, you want to be the greatest, but this countercultural approach to service needs to shape your ambitions. That's the point. Our, our place in Christ should shape our ambitions. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I like to talk often with our kids about what they're going to be when they grow up. Kids need to have ambitions. They need to have goals. They need to have dreams. Even at an early age, it's a good thing to have something to be working toward. Sometimes that's a little strange, but it's always a good conversation to have. But I, I, I want them to understand that those ambitions are to be in Christ, just as all of our other ambitions are to be in Christ. Like, like my, my oldest, um, TV's kind of tricky at our house, and we try to be very careful, and so a lot of old television shows we, we've watched for a long time. And my oldest son wants to be a big shot defense attorney in Atlanta. Now he gets that, most of you are not old enough to even know what this is about, but he gets that from watching Matlock on MeTV. That's where that comes from, big shot attorney. But, and so I want him to understand that that's a perfectly acceptable goal. But, but, his, but his overarching goal is to be able to provide for his family, for those in his care, and ultimately to contribute in meaningful ways to the advancement of the kingdom by being a big shot attorney in the city of Atlanta. All of our dreams, our hopes, and our ambitions are to be in Christ. What we hope to do 
is to leverage our interest, our talents, our gifts, our abilities for the advancement of the kingdom across the street and around the world. That's the goal. The job that God has given you, he has given you, not that you can rise the ranks, become the highest of the high, the first among many, but that you could leverage the position of influence that you have there that the kingdom would be advanced. The raise that God gives you annually, hopefully. God does not give you that you can waste on yourself, that you can blow on the children, but that you can leverage those gifts for the advancement of the kingdom. The gospel shapes all of our life, even our ambitions. Number four, and, and lastly, Christian service is to be marked by humility. These all overlap in a lot of ways. Humility is what makes it different. Being modeled after Jesus makes it different, which also implies it's humble in nature. It also means that it's countercultural. In, in the last part of our, our passage, Jesus calls a child up, and he makes him the illustration, the closing illustration for the sermon. He brings the child before them and he says, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome me but him who sent me. Now, later in this section, we're going to look at a passage where a child is brought as an example of humility in a different way. The child's humility is what's on display. But that's not the purpose of the child in the illustration in the present case. In other words, later he brings a child and says, hey, this, is, this is what it looks like to be a humble person who comes into the kingdom. And if you want to come into the kingdom, you need to get like this child. But in this instance, he, he, he brings the child and he says, now you need to be humble toward this child. What's the, go what's the purpose here? Y'all tracking with it here? The deal is the child has no ability to repay the act of service that the disciples do for the child. This is another one of those kingdom ethic issues. The Bible says that pure and undefiled religion is to tend to the needs of widows and orphans in their distress. Why widows and orphans? Here, what we're, what we're talking about is a category of people who have no capacity for repaying your investment of service. That's, that's the humility that Christian service calls us to. So much of what is couched as Christian service is really just an investment. Something that's done in the hopes that someday we'll be repaid for our efforts. For the past couple of years, we've had a young couple as neighbors back in Webster County. And, uh, and I, would, I would often go over and mow their yard. Young man didn't have a riding lawnmower and I'd see him out there sweating and I'd just swing over and mow. But what he did not know is that that was not so much an act of service in the Christian sense as it was an act of service in the earthly sense. Because I'm going to be reaping the dividends of those lawn mowings while he's mowing my yard in my absence until the house sells. That's what earthly service looks like. But Christian service has no expectation of an earthly return on investment. All of our dividends pay off in eternity. The Bible says in the day of judgment, all of our deeds will be brought before the judge. And they'll be tried by fire. 
And those not rightly motivated will be consumed as wood, hay, and stubble. But those that have been performed out of a heart of worship, out of a genuine humility, out of a want to follow after the example of our Savior, will be refined as pure gold and silver and rewarded in remarkable ways. Here the child has no opportunity, no ability for repaying the ministry of the disciples, for granting any repayment at all. It's just a service for the sake of of serving. As you sense the call of God in your life to go to work in some particular area, you may find that what God calls you to do is underpaid, underappreciated, and never acknowledged. And if you find that that's the case, you can rest assured that you're right in the wheelhouse of Christian service. You know, we've coined the term in recent years, celebrity Christians or celebrity preachers. Is there anything any more antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ than that language? I mean, this is where it's at. This is what it looks like. Not, Not our taking up picket signs and insisting that our rights be observed, that we live in absolute comfort with little challenge to our faith. No, no, no. But that we would pour ourselves out in service to the king. Not to get to 65 in retirement to draw that big 401k check. But that we would be met by the warm embrace of our Savior who says to us, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Oh, serving, serving, serving. And when we get there on the other side, you'll be so glad that you did.